Today's reading, Mark 8, 27 to 30, can be found on page 931 of the Bible's next tier seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. The word of the Lord. One of the best things about being able to um, deliver a message is the fact that I get to wear a lapel mic. You might not think that it's a very like fun thing to do, but you kind of go from like being a layman to being like a preacher to just being awesome. Um, so that's so. If, if anything, that's what you can learn from today is shoot for the lapel mic in your life. It will always always be good. Um, let's begin with a, I guess a, a word of prayer, um, and then we'll move on to to the message. Father God, there are moments in life where we have complete clarity. In these, in these moments, we praise you. There are moments, however, when life seems unclear, when we feel trapped in darkness, groping and searching for the light. Our lives constantly move between the murky and the clear. We join one of your followers' confessions in the gospel, saying, we believe, help our unbelief. Help us, O oh God, in the blurry moments. Amen. So this is a, a short passage, and there's one thing that comes immediately to mind um, when, I, when I read this, and when I reread it, and when I reread it again. Because um, in, in the Preaching Collective, we've been doing our, our passages for about nine months or so. So we've been getting really intimate with what's going on. And there's, there's one story that just kind of rises to the surface. And you might remember it. You might have heard of this, this TV show, Friends. You guys remember that? I might be a little too young to remember it, but trust me, I do. So this passage reminds me of um, this one like sub stories in Friends where Joey is in his apartment and a traveling salesman um, comes to his front door and offers to, to buy or to, to sell him encyclopedias. This was long before the internet when they had encyclopedias. I'm sure if you go to some public library, you can find one or two. Um, but he begins his pitch and he asks Joey, he says, he asks him, have you ever been in a situation where you've been with a group of your friends and they've been talking about something and you have no idea what they're talking about? And so the scene cuts to Joey, um, where his friends talk about politics, religion, um, literature, the Nobel Peace Prize. They hit all these scenes in, in different moments where he is out of conversation. And he just, they're talking about all these things and he is just nodding silently, saying, yes, I totally, I totally agree with exactly what you're saying. Even he has no idea what's going on. So the traveling salesman brings him out of his, his memories, and he says, sir, I've been waiting here for like five minutes. What's going on? And he goes, oh, yeah, you know, I've, you know once or twice I've been in, in those situations. And so the, the salesman, okay, well, would you like to buy an encyclopedia set? And he reaches in his pockets and pulls out um, $50. He's unable to buy the whole set. And so he stops and thinks, and the traveling salesman sees that he obviously is not going to make a sale, and then he decides to, to leave the apartment. So Joey stops him, and he says, wait, hold on, I'll buy one. So he decides, out of all the letters, out of all 26 letters, he decides that he's going to buy V, 
so he buys V. So he reads the single volume anywhere from Van Gogh to volcanoes to the Vatican City to vulcanized rubber to vomit in the Vietnam War. Anything with V, Joey gets it. He's finally about to enter into conversation. So the, it comes down to he's in the coffee shop. You know the coffee shop they're always in? He's in the coffee shop. His friends are sitting around a coffee table, and they're talking about something, and, and Joey says, oh, that person reminds me of Vulsuvius. And they go, like the volcano? Exactly like the volcano. Funny thing about volcanoes is da-da-da-da-da. So he's in conversation, finally. And then he goes, you know, it's really crazier than volcanoes, the Vietnam War. And they just kind of look at him like, what? The Vietnam War? Yeah, that's nuts. But what's crazier is the Korean War. So instantly, he's out of conversation. His friends move from, the, from volcanoes to Vesuvius to the Vietnam War to the Korean War. And again, Joey is left alone, nodding silently in agreement. That's what's happening in this passage, is Joey is out of conversation. There's something going on here that's just deeper than Jesus asking questions. This story is about how we find ourselves out of conversation how sometimes we, we are left out. We're just out of it. Something is happening around us, and we have no idea what's going on. Sometimes we're left without, um, without a set altogether, and we just have vague ideas of what's going on. Sometimes we even just have a single volume. And even then, in that single volume, we're missing a few pages. The story is about being in, it's about being out, and it is about conversation. There's three movements in this passage, three things that are happening. Um, and like any true, good, honest sermon, it, this is going to have three points. So the three movements of what's going on, I'll just tell you now, that way when I'm on two and you just, re- come on, Dan, a little faster. So the three points, the three movements in this passage is the wrong answer, the right answer, and the, and the right person. So the, the first point, the wrong answer You might think you know exactly who Jesus is. You might have a firm, solid idea about who Jesus is. The first movement of this passage is about those who get the wrong answer. Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say I am? And they say, oh, you're you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah, you're one of the prophets. And this is symptomatic to what's, what's happening in this, in this culture, in this time, in this period, in this, in this moment. The people's answer is based on general information and knowledge, things they've heard through the grapevine, things they've heard about Jesus' miracles, about Jesus' sayings. Jesus, their answer responds to a real need. It's responding to their own story. So what's going on here is that the, for the Jews in first century Judea are being... Um, are locked in this mode of oppression. They're being controlled. They're being... Um, they are, in a sense, being um, pulled outside of their story. For so long, they have been people whose stories has revolved around being, being let free out of, out of Exodus, where they know who they are They know who God is, and they know how God responds to them. That they are a people who who are always freed, and yet they're not being free. They are being controlled. They are being in oppression. They are a part of the empire. And so when they say that Jesus might be John the Baptist, he might be Elijah, he might be one of the prophets, they are responding to a real need that they understand. 
that Jesus has to be one of these people because they are desperately longing for that. They want it so badly. But it doesn't really make any sense because at this point, John the Baptist is dead. And when he was alive, he said that he was Elijah and that Jesus was going to come after him. So even then, their idea of who Jesus is is conflicting. It's conflicting based on logic. It's conflicting based on its own timeline. People are having all these ideas about who Jesus is, and they're conflicting with one another. So there has to be something, right? Jesus has to be some, someone. He can't be everything all at once. And so within this, this concept, within being occupied um, by foreigners for hundreds of years, they're desperately waiting for God to hear their prayers. And so these, these people on who, who Jesus, they're identifying as Jesus is, they are um, an expression of that real need, an expression of their prayers longing to be answered. They want to be free. There are people whose story revolves around freedom. But their answer misses, sorry, their answer misses the point. Um, it confuses Jesus' identity. And I think that we have this idea, too, of just this, this vague notion of who Jesus is. Because it seems every Easter, there's always something on Time Magazine about who really is Jesus. And how many times do you have to ask that question of who really Jesus is before you don't get an answer? And it's the same thing on the History Channel. There's always a new documentary about how Jesus wasn't crucified, but he fell off a cliff or something. Or how there's always someone is saying, this is who Jesus is. I finally have the answer. Which says something to me. That one, although we might not, our culture might not know who Jesus is, there's still a longing to figure it out. That Jesus is still a permeating figure in our culture, in our society, where we're still curious. And sometimes we just get, we just get the wrong answers. Sometimes it's like we're just reading the wrong encyclopedia. That we're talking about the Vietnam War, but someone's talking about the Korean War. And then there's the right answer, where you might, you might have pushed aside all of those external, external conversations about who Jesus is, and you are confident and clear about who Jesus is. You've experienced life. You might have experienced some type of spiritual event where you are completely confident on who Jesus is. That's what's going on when Jesus asks the disciples. He moves away from, who do the people say I am, to who do you say I am? And Peter says, he speaks for the group and he says, you are the Messiah. Where the people, where they've heard vague rumors about what Jesus said or what Jesus has done, the disciples have been with Jesus for months and they've seen those things and they've heard those things. They have, they have stories that they can't explain where Jesus walks on water, where he feeds 5,000 people with just bread and fish. They have inexplainable experiences. And Peter says, you are the Messiah. But this is also wrong because, because Peter's response to Jesus' question is, is that honed-in idea of who Peter wants Jesus to be. The Messiah is supposed to be, at least in this point in time, a, a revolutionary military figure that's going to expel the Romans out of Judea. He, they want Jesus to be a, a revolutionary, to just to kick them out, to shed their blood. Peter is looking for someone who Jesus isn't. And Peter gets to the very heart of the question. He draws himself into the central being question. He draws 
on Jewish theology that the Messiah has to be this person that's going to free us. Again, it responds to that same spiritual need that the people are looking for, but it's honed in that Jesus has to be this person. Because what, what else is God going to do? How else is God going to, to free his people? There has to be one way, and it has to be a violent, bloody revolution. But something is happening in Mark at, at this point in time, in this passage. Before this passage, a, a blind man is revealed when Jesus spits on his eyes. After this passage, Jesus reveals his death and resurrection. And then following that, there's a transfiguration. So this, this section in Mark is a climax into the story where there is this existential feeling, this existential being question about who Jesus is, that Jesus is not about what, he's, what he teaches necessarily. He's not about the miracles he performs. They are glimpses. They are blurry moments that Jesus eventually clears up for us. Oftentimes, when we want our answers, it's usually in the blurry moments, when things just don't seem to go right, when you have that book and it's missing pages, when you want a full conversation and you can only get bits and pieces. What's going on here is Peter only has one half of the conversation. He only has his plea for God. He only has his prayers, his expectations that Jesus has to be a military figure. But that's too easy. It's too easy to be violent. It's too easy to, be, um, to cause revolution by, by, by murder, by killing someone. What's going on here is something radically different. This text beautifully centers itself onto this question. It cuts to the very heart of, of being. It cuts to the very heart of timing. His reflection is of another expectation. But as Peter expects Jesus to be this, what do you expect Jesus to be? We all have our needs. We all have our, our general vague ideas about who Jesus is, like the people in the, in the, first, the first question. And then we hone in on this, the second question. What about you? Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you expect Jesus, Jesus is? So at this point, Peter's almost like having that right book, but missing a few pages. He's almost at that point where he's so close. His prayers are so fervent, yet he's missing the point. How often in our expectations of, of Jesus do you feel like you just miss, miss the point? And so that leads us not to the, the wrong answer or even the right answer, which is really the wrong answer. It leads us to the right person. That Jesus doesn't really care about your right or wrong answers. That he is desperately longing to know you. That he is real. Jesus strictly warns Peter not to tell anyone. I mean, really, if you think about it, if Peter is expecting a Messiah that's going to free the Israelites, free the, the Jews from the Romans, and it's supposed to be bloody and violent, Jesus doesn't really want that to get out. Because if it is, he's going to be killed. So it's really tactical. Whoa, 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 wait, hold on. Don't tell anyone because you're obviously wrong, but if you do tell anyone, it's going to ruin the whole, the whole story. So Jesus says, stop. You can't talk about this. 
And this is peculiar in the passage, right? Because on, on the first read, you think that it, Peter does have, have something going on, right? That he does have an idea of what's, what's happening. But Peter is absolutely wrong. And this isn't abnormal for Peter to get something wrong. If there's anyone in the Bible, he is con- it is Peter who consistently gets things wrong. In the next passage, um, immediately following this, Jesus tells the disciples really who the Son of Man is. He said the Son of Man is someone that is going to die and resurrect. Never been done before. The Son of Man will die and resurrect. And Peter says, no, 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 wait a minute. I'll die before that happens. And Peter rebukes him and he says, you, you can't do this. That's not who you're supposed to be because Jesus, Peter has these expectations on who Jesus is. And certainly those expectations doesn't include dying because you don't want your leader to die because that isn't good for anyone. Um, and so Jesus responds and he says, Peter, Satan, get behind me. So Peter goes from, from this moment of having at least somewhat expected clarity to just being in full um, murky water where Jesus, the rabbi, his teacher, calls him Satan. This is pretty symptomatic of Peter, where he kind of goes in and out of doing the right and wrong thing, which, I mean, that doesn't really apply to me at all. I hardly ever do the wrong thing. Um, But I can imagine some of you feel like you do the wrong thing. Oftentimes, those, those blurry moments where we just do the wrong thing, and we're so looking to do the right thing, and just it's this balancing act, or it's this feeling lost, feeling blurry. And we think, how I expected Jesus to be this, this person, this God for me. And yet it's not, it's not fitting what, what's, what's going on. So Jesus emphatically responds to the real need that's going on here. And it's not about that Peter got it wrong or he gets it right. It's about that Jesus wants Peter for his whole story, for his entire journey. And if you look at this one moment, this one blimp of Peter kind of getting it right, I mean, that's enough to to just last him for a while, but it doesn't because he gets it wrong again, and then he gets it right, and then he gets it wrong, and then eventually he denies Jesus, and Jesus and Peter have to have a little powwow on the beach about how, how much Peter was wrong, and he brings him back into the fold. And even then, after Jesus ascends to heaven, Peter still gets it wrong, and Paul has to kick his butt, and he even talks about it. And now for 2,000 years, people are still talking about how Peter gets it wrong. He just has a really bad rap and a bad story. But the point of the story is not that he gets it wrong or that he gets it right. The point of the story is that he experiences Jesus. That even in the midst of the right and the wrong answers of having the full set of the encyclopedia to having a single volume to having pages, that he's still on the story and that Jesus desperately longs to be a part of your story. What changes in this, in this section, in this story, is the cross. It has neither Greek nor Jewish precedent. We can see at this story, at this stage in the story, that it's only a blur of something that's happening. And as we move through the story, the blurriness begins, begins to clear at times. And we see who Jesus is. And Jesus is absolutely real. But today, we don't necessarily want to talk about 
the clear times because those times are, when we have them, they're obvious. We want to lift up the blurry times because when, when we move through those times, that's when we have, we find the most clarity. That's when we find God the most. That's even when God speaks to us the most. It's those blurry moments that reveals something else is happening. In the next section, Jesus offers clarity about who he says he is, the death and the resurrection. Peter rebukes, Jesus returns. Peter's story in the gospel is always filled with wrong answers. Yet even in the midst of those wrong answers, grace is still abundant. Peter's response allows room for Jesus to invite Peter into moments of clarity. We're lifting up these blurry moments. It's not always about finding the answers. It's about finding the right person. Peter's story ends beautifully, though, because when he's at the end of his life and there's a moment where Jesus, Jesus is gone, he's ascended into heaven, and the story of, of Jesus, how they communicate this story, is about how Jesus is real. And in Second Peter, we have this moment where there's this yearning, this longing uh, for Peter to tell whoever's going to read his letter, that Jesus is real. That there's something dynamically happened in his life. And his life has never been the same. And so he says in in 2 Peter, we weren't, you know, this is about the transfiguration. We weren't, you know, wishing on a star when we laid the facts out before you regarding the powerful return of our master, Jesus Christ. We were there for the preview. We saw it with our own eyes, Jesus resplendent with light from God the Father as the voice of majestic glory spoke. This is my son, marked by my love, focus of all my delights. We were there on the holy mountain with him. We heard the voice out of heaven with our own ears. Jesus, Peter's story is real. And for the rest of his, his life, Jesus was entering into his story. And he desperately longed to meet his friends. This reminds me of um, in Exodus when the Israelites are trying to make their way to the promised land and they take the tabernacle with them whereas where they, the, the location, the space, the moments, the glimpse where they were able to meet God. And when Moses went into the tabernacle, every time he, he went out, his face um, was glowing. And eventually he had to wear a bag on his head because the other Israelites were scared. But the phrase that the Israelites used when they talked about Moses meeting God, they said it was like a man meeting his friends. You can have the the wrong answers where we have this general idea about who Jesus is. And you can have kind of the right answers where you just just get pockets and glimpses of who Jesus is. But where the real story is that has nothing to do with the answers is when you move through your life And you experience Jesus like someone meeting his friend. I think that's probably the most beautiful phrase in the Bible, where Moses would meet God like a man meets his friend. This past week, I can't remember where where I was, but I I was obviously somewhere, um, because I'm never nowhere, but... I remember hearing someone um, just kind of talking about how their, their life is just progressing and they're getting older and he just, 
He said, man, how, how am I getting old? Our culture is so inundated just with a new thing, something that just is coming out this time and then it's going to come out three months from now and then three months later. Um, there's a company that does that. It's like some fruit or something. Um, but we're pushed with something new over and over and over again. And we don't really value using something to its fullest or even having something to its fullest. We don't really break things in anymore. When it's broken in, we think, oh, we might need to get something new. And even in our own culture, at City Life, for the most part, we're pretty young. I mean, there's some... You're getting up there, Mark. But for the most part, we're, we're young, and we have, we have expectations, and we have dreams, and we have moments. But the story is not about moving on. The story is about where we are and who we meet. Personally, I want to live to the point where when I'm old, I want to say, finally, Jesus is my friend. Finally, I'm in this moment where I come to Jesus, not as what can I get from from him, but as a man meets his friends. In our tradition, there's a poet named George Herbert. Um, He's a 17th century um, poet, kind of in the the same timeline as John Donne, a little bit after after Shakespeare. Um, And he spent his career writing about movements and approaches to God. In one letter, he wrote to his friend, his, his writings are a picture of spiritual conflicts between God and my soul before I could subject, subject my will to Jesus, my master. His primary work, Temple, is a, describes a journey moving towards God. He uses the metaphor as the temple, and each, each poem that he writes is about a different, different phase in that temple process. And it's really cool if you look him up, because most of his, his poetry, um, the structure fits the object that he's talking about. So the altar fits the structure of an altar. He's absolutely brilliant. But it's about his, his approaches to God. And one of his last poems, his very last poem that he wrote, is called Love Three. You actually can find part of the, part of the poem in the worship guide. And it's about love personified. Um, he invites, love invites a guest into his, his space, into um, his home. And as love and, and guests move through anxiety and comfort, for every excuse that the guest gives, love gives an answer. Love offers relief and alleviation. So the stands in your worship guide right before this, love is asking the guests if there's anything that he can do for him. And the guest says this, a guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I. There's this, this sweetness in, the, in this poem that is so different than a younger George Herbert. This sweetness is finally he meets his master. And he offers all these excuses about why he can't why he can't approach, about why he's not worthy, about why there can be a better guess, about why his, his eyes are disgraceful and shamed. And love cuts 
directly past all of his excuses, all of his answers, all of his questions. And, he, and love says, in this blurriness, in these, in these moments of unclarity that you have, I am going to remind you, who made the eyes but I? That's the gospel. That's the power of God's love. That in spite of all the answers, in spite of all the questions that you have, in spite of all the blurry moments that you've moved through, and all the, the muck and grime, that Jesus is real and desperately wants to know you, desperately wants to love you. He wants to be a part of your story. He wants to be with you on your journey. He loves you. And no matter what you do, He loves you. No matter what you think you've done, He loves you. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we... We thank you for the blurry moments because in those moments we know that you are true and you are faithful and you will reveal yourself to us. We love you. Give us peace and give us grace. Join us in our journey so that we can call you friends. Amen.